Volume 2, Chapter 13 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, A Legend of the Rhine, by James Fedemore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedemore Cooper, Volume 2, Chapter 13. Israel, are these men the mighty hearts you spoke of? Byron. There was little resemblance in the characters of the two prelates beyond that which was the certain consequence of their common employment. If Bonifacius was the most learned of the strongest intellectual gifts, and in other particulars relating to the mind of the higher endowments, the princely abbot of Isenden had more of those gentle and winning qualities which best adorn the Christian life. Perhaps neither was profoundly and meekly pious, for this was not easy to men surrounded by so many inducements to flatter their innate weaknesses. But both habitually respected the outward observances of their church, and both, in degrees proportioned to the boldness and sagacity of their respective intellects, yielded faith to the virtue of its offices. On quitting the sacristy, they proceeded through the cloisters to the abode of the chief of the community. Here, closeted together, there was a consultation concerning their further proceedings. Thou wert of near neighborhood, said he of Our Lady of the Hermits, to this hardy baron, Brother Bonifacius. As thou mayest imagine by the late events, there lay but a few arrows' flights between his castle and our unhappy walls. Had ye good understanding of old, or cometh the present difficulty from long-standing grievances? Thou art happy, pious Rudiger, to be locked as you are among your frosts and mountains beyond the reach of a noble's arm and beyond the desires of noble's ambition. Limburg and the craving counts have scarce known peace since our abbey's foundation. Your unquiet baron fills some such agency in respect to our religious communities as that which the unquiet spirit of the father of sin occupies in the moral world. And yet I doubt that the severest blow we are to receive will come from one of ourselves. If all that rumor and missives about the bishops reveal to be true, this schism of Luther promises us a lasting injury. Bonifacius, whose mind penetrated the future much farther than most of his brethren possessed the means of doing, heard this remark gloomily, and he sat brooding over the pictures which a keen imagination presented while his companion watched the play of his massive features with intuitive interest. Thou art right, princely abbot, the former at length replied. To us, both the future and the past are filled with lessons of deep instruction, could we but turn them to present advantage. All that we know of earth shows that each physical thing returns to its elements, when the object of its creation has been accomplished. The tree helps to pile the earth, which once nourished its roots. The rock crumbles to the sand of which it was formed, and every man turns to that dust which was animated that he might live. Can we expect that our abbeys, or even the church itself in its present temporal organization, will stand forever? Thou hast done well to qualify thy words by saying temporal, good Bonifacius, for if the body decays, the soul remains, and the essence of our communion is in its spiritual character. Hearken, right reverend and noble Rudiger, go ask Luther in the nicety of his creed on this point, and he will tell you that he is a believer in the transmigration of souls, that he keepeth the spiritual character but in a new dress, and that, while he consigns the ancient body to the tomb, he only lightens the imperishable part of a burthen that has grown too heavy to be borne. But this is rank rebellion to authority and flat refusal of doctrine. Of the former there can be no question, and, as to our German regions, most seem prepared to incur its risks. 
In respect to doctrine, learned Rudiger, you now broach a thesis which resembles the bells in your convent towers, on which there may be rung endless changes from the simple chime to a triple bob major. Nay, Reverend Bonifacius, thou treatest the grave subject with irreverent levity. If we are to tolerate these innovations, there is an end of discipline, and I marvel that a dignified priest should so esteem them. Thou doest me injustice, brother, for what I urge is said in befitting seriousness. The ingenuity of man is so subtle, and his doubts once engaged so restless, that when the barrier of discipline is raised, I know no conclusion for which a clever head may not find a reason. Has it never struck thee, Reverend Rudiger, that a great error hath been made from the commencement in founding all our ordinances to regulate society, whether they be of religious or of mere temporal concerns? Thou askest this of one who hath been accustomed to think of his superiors with respect. I touch not on our superiors, nor on their personal qualities. What I would say is that our theories are too often faulty, inasmuch as they were made to suit former practices. Whereas in a well-ordered world, methinks the theory should come first, and the usage follow as a consequence of suitable conclusions." This might have done for him who possessed Eden, but those who came after were compelled to receive things as they were and to turn them to profit as they might. Brother and princely abbot, thou hast grappled with the dilemma. Could we be placed in the occupancy of this goodly heritage, untrammeled by previously endeared interests, seeing the truth not would be easier than to make practice conform to theory? But, being that we are priest and noble, saint and sinner, philosopher and worldling, why, look you, the theory is driven to conform to the necessities of practice, and hence doctrine, at the best, is but a convertible authority. As a Benedictine and a lover of Rome, I would that Luther had been satisfied with mere change in habits, for these may be accomplished to climates and prejudices. But when the floodgates of discussion are raised, no man can say to what extent or in what direction the torrent will flow. Thou hast little faith, seemingly, in the quality of reason. Bonifacius regarded his companion a moment with an ill-concealed sneer. Surely, holy Rudiger, he gravely replied, thou hast not so long governed thy fellows to put this question to me. Hast thou said passion we might rightly quick come to an understanding? The corollaries of our animal nature follow reasonably enough from the proposition, but when we quit the visible landmarks of the species to launch upon the ocean of speculation, we commit ourselves to the mariner who trusts his magnet to an unknown cause. He that is a hungered will eat, and he that is pained will roar. He that hath need of gold will rob, in some shape or other, and he that loveth his ease may prefer quiet to trouble. All this may be calculated with other inferences that follow. But if thou wilt tell me what course the Lammergeier will take when he hath soared beyond the Alps, I will tell thee the direction in which the mind of man will steer when fairly afloat on the sea of speculation and argument. The greater the necessity that it should be held in the wholesome limits of discipline and doctrine. Were doctrine like our convent walls, all would be well, but being what it is, men become what they are. How? Dost thou account faith for naught? I have heard there were brothers of deep piety in Limburg. Father Johann, who perished in defense of thy altars, may go near to be canonized, to say nothing of the excellent prior who is here among us on this pilgrimage. I count faith for much, excellent brother, and happy is he who can satisfy uneasy scruples by so pleasant an expedient. Brother Johann may be canonized, if our father of Rome shall see fit. Hereafter, and the fallen Limburg will have reason to exult in its member. 
Still, I do not see that the unhappy Johann proveth aught against the nature of doctrine. For, had he been possessed of less personacity in certain of his opinions, he would have escaped the fate which befell him. Is martyrdom a lot to displease a Christian? Bethink thee of the fathers and of their ends. Had Johann bethought him more of their fortunes, his own might have been different. Reverend Abbot, Johann hath long ceased to be a riddle to me, though I deny not his utility with the peasant and the fervent. But him thou hast last mentioned. Here Bonifacius leaned a cheek on his hand and spoke like one that was seriously perplexed. Him thou namest last, the sincere and wise and simple Arnoff, have I never truly comprehended. That man appeareth equally contented in his cell or in his stall, honored equally in his office and on this weary pilgrimage. Whether in prosperity or in misfortune, he is ever at peace with himself and with others. He is truly a man that no reasoning of mine hath been able to fathom. He is not ambitious, for thrice hath he refused the mitre. He is sustained by no wild visions or deceitful fantasies like the unhappy Johann, nor yet is he indifferent to any of the more severe practices of his profession, all of which are observed quietly and seemingly with satisfaction. He is learned without the desire of discussion, meek amid a firmness that would despise the stake, and forgiving to a degree that might lead us to call him easy, but for a consistency that never seemeth to yield to any influence of season, events, or hopes. Truly, this is a man that baffleth all my knowledge. Bonifacius, in despite of his acquirements, his masculine intellect, and his acquaintance with men, did not perceive how much he admitted against himself by expressing his own inability to fathom the motives of the prior. Nor did the enigma appear to be perfectly intelligible to his companion, who listened curiously to the other's description of their brother, as much as we hearken to a history of inexplicable or supernatural incidents. I have heard much of Arnoff, observed the latter, though never matter so strange as this, and yet most seem to love him. Therein is his power, though often most opposed to me, I cannot say that I myself am indifferent to the man. By our patron saint, I sometimes fain believe I love him. He was among the last to desert our altars when pressed by this rapacious noble and his credulous and silly burghers, and yet was he foremost to forgive the injury when committed. But for him and his high influence with the bishops, there might have been blows for blows, spite of the schism that hath turned so many in Germany from our support. And since thou speakest of the schism, in what manner dost thou account for an innovation so hardy, in a region that is usually esteemed reasonable? There must have been relaxation of authority, for there is no expedient so certain to prevent heresies or errors of doctrine as a church well established and which is maintained by fitting authority. Bonifacius smiled, for even in that early age his penetrating mind saw the fallacy to which the other was a dupe. This is well when there is right, but when there is error, brother, your established authority does but uphold it. The provisions that are made in thy comfortable abode to keep the cold air out may be the means of keeping foul air within. In this manner of reasoning, truth can have no existence. Thou dreadest doctrine, and thou wilt not of discipline? Nay, holy Rudiger, in the latter thou greatly misconceiveth me. Of discipline I would have all that is possible. I merely deny that it is any pledge of truth. We are apt to say that a well-ordained and established church is the buttress of truth, when experience plainly showeth that this discipline doeth more harm to truth than it can ever serve it, and that simply because there can be but one truth, while there are many modes of discipline. Many establishments therefore uphold many errors, or truth hath no identity with itself. 
Thou surprisest me, whatever may come of this heresy, as yet I know of but one assault on our supremacy, and that cometh of error, and we come of right. This is well for Christendom, but what saith it for your Moslem, your fire-worshipper, your Hindu, your pagan, and all the rest, any one of whom is just as ready to keep out error by discipline as we of Rome? Until now, certainly among Christians, that this evil hath not often happened, though even we are not without our differences. But looking to this advance of the printing art and of the variety of opinions that are its fruits, I foresee that we are to have many opposing expedients, all of which will be equally well pondered and concocted to keep in truth and to exclude error. This pretension of high authority and of close exactions to maintain purity of doctrine and what we deem truth is well as the jurists say quad hoc. But nothing touching the general question, I do not see its virtue. Now that men enlist with passion in these spiritual discussions, we may look to see various modifications of the church, all of which will be more or less buttressed by human expedience, as so many preservatives of truth. But when the time shall come that countries and communities are divided among themselves on these subtleties, look you, excellent Rudiger, we may expect to shut in as much error by our laws and establishments as we shall shut out. I fear heaven is a goal that must be reached by general mediation, leaving each to give faith to the minor points of doctrine according to his habits and abilities. This savors more of the houseless abbot than of him who lately had an obedient and flourishing brotherhood, Rudiger somewhat piquantly rejoined. Bonifacius was unmoved by the evident allusion, regarding his companion coolly and like a man who too well knew his own superiority easily to take offense. His reply, however, would probably have been a retort notwithstanding the seeming moderation had not a door opened and Arnoff quietly entered the room. The reception of the prior by his two mitred brethren proved the deep respect which had so universally been won by his self-denying qualities. In the great struggle of the conflicting egotism which composes in a great degree the principle of most of the actions of this uneasy world, no one is so likely to command universal esteem as he who appears willing to bear the burden of life, with as little as possible of its visible benefits by withdrawing himself from the arena of its contentions. In the great mass, an occasional retreat from the struggle on the part of those who have few means of success creates but little feeling of sort, perhaps. But when he that hath undeniable pretensions exhibits this forbearance, he may be certain of obtaining full credit for all that he possesses and more, even to the admission of qualifications that would be vehemently denied had he taken a different attitude in respect to his rivals. Such was, in some measure, the position of Father Arnoff, and Bonifacius himself never struggled to resist his natural impulses towards the pious monk. Having a secret persuasion that none of his virtues, however publicly proclaimed, were likely to militate against his own interests. Thou art much wearied, holy prior, said the abbot of Einzinden, offering a seat to his visitor with assiduous and flattering attention. I count it not, princely Rudiger. Having lighted the way with much good discourse and many prayers, my pilgrims are faint, but happily arrived, they are now fairly committed to the convent's hospitality. Thou hast with thee, Reverend Arnoff, a noble of high esteem in thy German country, of ancient blood and of great worldly credit, returned the prior with reserve. What thinkest thou, Brother Bonifacius? It may not be prudent to make any very public manifestations of a difference of treatment between those who seek our shrine, but do not hospitality and such courtesy as marketh our own breeding demand some private greetings? Is my opinion suitable, worthy Arnoff? God is no respecter of persons, Abbot of Einzinden. 
Can any know this better than ourselves? But we pretend not to perfection, nor can our judgments be set up as decisive of men's merits farther than belongs to our office. Ours is an hospitable order, and we are privileged to earn esteem, and therefore doth it appear to me not only becoming our politic to show a noble of this repute, and at a moment when heresy runs mad, that we do not overlook the nature of his sacrifices. Thou art silent, Brother Abbot. The abbot of Limburg listened with secret satisfaction, for he had views of his own that the proposal favored. He was therefore about to give a ready assent when Arnoff interrupted him. I have nobles among my followers, right reverend abbots, said the latter earnestly, and I have those that deserve to be more than noble if deep Christian humility can claim to be so esteemed. I did not come to speak of Emic of Hartenburg, but the spirit sorely bruised, and to beg of thee, in their behalf, a boon of churchly offices. Name it, Father, and make certain of its fair reception. But it is now late, and no rites of the morrow need defeat our intentions of honest hospitality. They, in whose behalf I would speak, said Arnoff with apparent mortification, are already without, if admitted, they may best explain their own desires." The abbot signified a ready assent to receive these visitors, and the prior hastened to admit them, anticipating a wholesome effect on the minds of his superiors from the interview. When he reappeared, he was followed by Ulrich, Lochchen, and Meta, who came after him in the order named. Both the abbots seemed surprised, for it exceeded their confidence in themselves to admit visitors of that sex at an hour so equivocal in the more retired parts of the buildings, and they counted little on the boldness of innocence. This exceedeth usage, exclaimed the superior of Einzinden. It is true we have our privileges, pious Arnoff, but they are resorted to with great discretion. Fear not, holy abbot, Arnoff calmly answered. This visit may at least claim to be as harmless as that of those thou hast just named. Speak, virtuous Ulrich, that thy wishes may be known. Ulrich crossed herself, first casting a tearful eye on the pallid and depressed countenances of her daughter and of her friend. We are come to your favored shrine, princely and pious abbot, she slowly commenced like one who feared the effects of her own words. Penitents, pilgrims, and acknowledging our sins in order to expiate a great wrong and to implore heaven's pardon. The accomplishment of our wishes hath been promised by the church and by one greater than the church should we bring with us contrite hearts. In this behalf, then, we have now little to offer, since our pious guide, the beloved and instructed Arnoff, hath taught us to admit no observance, nor hath he, in any particular, left us ignorant of the state of mind that best befitteth our present undertaking. But right reverend abbot, proceed, daughter, thou wilt find all here ready to listen, said Rudiger, kindly, observing that her words became choked, and that she continued to cast uneasy looks at Lachchen and Meta. The voice of the speaker sank, but her turns were still more earnest as she continued. Holy Benedictine, aided by heaven's kindness, I will. In all that toucheth our pilgrimage and its duties, we confide entirely to the pious counsel of the learned and godly Arnoff, and he will tell you that not material hath by us been neglected. We have prayed and confessed and fasted and done the needed expiations in a meek mood and with contrite hearts. We come then to ask a service of this favored community, which we trust may not be refused to the Christian. The abbot looked surprised, but he awaited her own time to continue. It hath pleased heaven to call away one dear to us at a short summons, proceeded Ulrich, not without casting another fearful glance at her companions, and we would ask the powerful prayers of the community of Our Lady of the Hermits in behalf of his soul. 
Of what age was the deceased? God summoned him, Reverend Abbott, in early youth. By what means did he come to his end? By a sudden display of heaven's power. Died he at peace with God and the church? Father, his end was sudden and calamitous. None can know the temper of his mind at that awful moment. But did he live in the practices of our faith? Thou comest from a region in which there is much heresy, and this is an hour in which the shepherd cannot desert the fold. Ulrich paused, for the breathing of her friend was thick and audible. Princely Abbot, he was a Christian. I held him myself at the font. This humble penitent and pilgrim gave him birth, and to this holy prior hath he often confessed. The abbot greatly disliked the manner of the answers. His brow drew over the eyes, and he turned jealous glances from Arnoff to the females. Canst thou vouch for thy penitent? he demanded abruptly of the prior. His soul hath need of masses. Was he tainted with the heresy of the times? Arnoff paused. His mind underwent a severe struggle, for while he distrusted the opinions of Burkhold, he knew nothing that a scrupulous and conscientious judge could fairly construe to unequivocal evidence of his dereliction from the church. Thou dost not answer, prior. God hath not gifted me with knowledge to judge the secret heart. Ha! This grows plainer. Reverend Bonifacius, canst thou say aught of this? The dethroned abbot of Limburg had, at first, listened to the dialogue with indifference. There had even been an ironical smile on his lips while Ulrich was speaking, but when Arnulf was questioned, it disappeared in an active and a curious desire to know in what manner a man so conscientious would extricate himself from the dilemma. Thus directly questioned, however, he found himself obliged to become a party in the discourse. I well know, princely and pious Rudiger, that heresy is rife in our misguided Palatinate, he answered, else would not the abbot of Limburg be a houseless guest in Einzenden. Thou hearest, daughter? The youth is suspected of dying an enemy of the church. The greater the errors, if this be true, the greater the need that prayers be offered for his soul. This would truly be aiding Lucifer in his designs to overturn our tabernacles and a weakness not to be indulged. I am grieved to be compelled to show this discipline to one of thy seeming zeal. But our altars cannot be defiled by sacrifices in behalf of those who despise them. Was the youth connected with the fall of Limburg? Father, he died in the crush of its roofs said Ulrich in nearly inaudible syllables, and we deem the manner of his end another reason why extraordinary masses should be said in his behalf. Thou askest an impossibility. Were we to yield to our pity in these cases of desperate heresies, it would discourage the faithful and embolden those who are already too independent. Father, said a tremulous and low but eager voice, what wouldst thou, daughter? asked the abbot, turning to Lachin. Listen to a mother's prayer. The boy was born and educated in the bosom of the church. For reasons at which I do not repine, heaven early showed its displeasure on his father and on me. We were rich and we became poor. We were esteemed of men and we learned how much better is the support of God. We submitted and when we saw those who had once looked up to us in respect looking down upon us in scorn, we kissed the child were grateful and did not repine. Even this trial was not sufficient. The father was taken from his pains and mortifications, and my son put on the livery of a baron. I will not say, I cannot say, my strength would have been equal to all this of itself. An angel in the form of this constant and excellent woman was sent to sustain me until the late wrong to Limburg. We had our hopes and our hours of happiness. But that crime defeated all. My boy hath perished by a just anger, and I remain to implore heaven in his behalf. 
Wilt thou refuse the church's succor to a childless mother who, this favor obtained, will be ready to bless God and die? Thou troublest me, daughter, but I beg thee to remember I am but the guardian of a high and sacred trust. Father, said a second and still more thrilling appeal, thou too, child, what wouldst thou of one but too ready to yield were it not for duty? Meta had kneeled, and throwing back the hood of her pilgrim's mantle, the change left her bloodless face exposed to the abbot's view. The girl seemed severely struggling with herself. Then, finding encouragement in her mother's eye, she was able to continue. I know, most holy and very reverend abbot, she commenced with an evidently regulated phraseology, like one who had been instructed how to make the appeal, that the church hath need of much discipline, without which there would be neither duration nor order in its existence. This hath my mother taught me, and we both admit it, and prize the truth. For this reason we have submitted ourselves to all its ordinances, never failing to confess and worship or to observe fasts and saints' days. Even the mitred Bonifacius there will not deny this as respects either of us. Meta delayed as if inviting the abbot to gainsay her words if he could, but Bonifacius was silent. As for him that hath died, resumed Meta, this is truth. He was born a Christian, and he never said aught in my presence against the church. Thou canst not think, father, that he who sought my esteem would strive to gain it by means that no Christian girl could respect, that he was often at the abbey confessionals, I know, and that he was asked in favor with this holy prior thou hast but to ask but to learn. In going against Limburg, he did not but obey his Lord, as others have often done before. And surely all that fall in battle are not to be hopelessly condemned. If there is heresy in Germany, is it not of itself to endure so great a danger in life that the dead must be abandoned to their past acts without succor from the church or thought from their friends? Oh, thou wilt think better, holy but cruel Rudiger, of thy hasty decision. Give us then masses for poor Burkhold. I know not what Bonifacius may have said to thee in secret concerning the youth, but this much would I say in his favor, in presence of the assembled earth, more pious son, more faithful follower, a braver at need, a more gentle in intercourse, a truer or kinder heart than his, does not now beat in the Palatinate. I know not, but I exceed the limits of a maiden's speech in what I say, continued the girl ardently, a bright spot shining on her cheek amid her tears. But the dead are mute, and if those they loved are cold to their wants, in what manner is heaven to know their cruel need? Good daughter, interrupted the abbot, who began to feel distressed. We will think of this. Go thou to thy rest, and may God bless thee. Nay, I cannot sleep while the soul of Burkhold endures this jeopardy. Perhaps the church will demand penance on his behalf. My mother Lochchen is no longer young and strong as formerly, but thou seest, father, what I am. Name what thou wilt. Pilgrimages, fasts, stripes, prayers, or vigils are all alike to me. Nay, think not that I regard them. Thou canst not bestow more happiness than to give this task for poor Burkhold's sake. Oh, hadst thou known him, holy monk, so kind with the weak, so gentle with us maidens, and so true, thou wouldst not, nay, thou couldst not need another prayer to grant the masses. Bonifacius, is there no means of justifying the confession? I would speak with thee, brother, answered the Limburg, who, with a thoughtful countenance, awaited his comparison a little apart from the others. The conference of the two prelates was short, but it was decisive. Take away the child, said Abbot Rudiger to Ulrich. The weight of heaven's displeasure must be borne. 
The prior sighed heavily, but he signed for the females to obey like one who saw the uselessness of further entreaties. Leading the way, he left the abbot's abode, his companions following, nor did a murmur escape either while giving this proof of patient submission. It was only when Ulrich and Lochchen had reached the open air that they found the helpless girl they supported was without sensibility. As fits of fainting had been common of late, her mother felt no great alarm, nor was it long before all the female pilgrims sought the pillows they so much needed. End of Volume 2, Chapter 13 Read by Joel Kendrick